You know, that dates us, you know that. When we grew up, we had these jeans that you bought that were brand new. Everybody hated brand new jeans. They were stiff, they were tight, you know. And they were blue, real blue. Hence, blue jeans. So we'd wash them 100,000 times. Get them dirty on purpose. Now society has moved where now somewhere in a little factory someplace in probably Europe, they take brand new jeans before they ever sell them, make them look like they're 30 years old. Where we, my mom used to throw them away, you just start buying them. <laughs> but I got to confess, I do have two pairs that got little, I got little holes in mine. <laughs> got to stay up with the times. I'm just kidding. He's, he's my son. I love him to death. And good job today, and thank you. You can wear whatever you want. <clears throat> now, if you have your Bibles this morning, let's come to 1 Corinthians again, and we're going to come to uh, uh, chapter 13. Not going to really get into chapter 13 today because I think that uh, we need to define something today that I think is really going to help you. I, I got to tell you, you know, the Bible says in Ephesians, and we talked about this before, that that, uh, you know, that he gave gifts to the church. And we talked about, we talked about the gifts that he gave to the church. And uh, he talked about apostles, he talked about prophets, and then he talks about pastors and teachers. And if you study that passage, you'll find that it's not, it's not pastors, then teachers, it's pastors and teachers. In other words, a pastor should be a teacher. And it's not two separate things there if you look at the punctuation and the way he's laying it out. And I, I, I get excited about days like today because um, I, I, you have an opportunity today to really learn something. Not that you don't have an opportunity to learn something every Sunday. I don't mean that. But you're going to get something defined for you today that I think is absolutely crucial. And if you do the homework, get the tapes, follow this thing back through, you're going to get a major piece of your Bible down today and thoroughly understand it. Before we get into chapter 13 and 14, and you remember, we've talked about coming through the church at Corinth, how we're looking at Christ as Lord. And we see that this church is the church that has all the outside appearances of being the real deal, but in essence, it, it's far from what God wanted it to be. It's got a lot of problems. We have seen every chapter multiple issues that they're struggling with and they're dealing with. And now we've come to chapter 12, 13, and 14, where the issue here is very clearly that they're completely messed up on every aspect of spiritual gifts. And what Paul does in this book is he, he tries to bring them online. He tries to show them what they're doing wrong. He tries to show them what the Bible says. And for us, it's a great section because it shows us the inside of these issues so we can better understand them. And today we're going to define for you one of the biggest issues in all of Bible Christianity today, has been for the last hundred years. You know, my goal here is always to teach you the Bible. That's my whole goal. And I get excited about situations like today where we can define a large chunk of your Bible that you'll go out of here completely understanding it in a way that, because you're going to deal with this all the rest of your life till Jesus comes back. You're going to have people in your world. You're going to see things, experience things, be part of things where this issue is going to come up. 
because there's no other issue is more controversial and I think damaging to the body of Christ than this teaching that's all messed up today. And in chapter 13 and 14, Paul zeroes in on what the main issue is with the church of Corinth and their mishandling of the spiritual gifts. And I want to define for you today from the Bible, I want to walk you through scripture by scripture and show you the historical aspect, the biblical aspect, and then the aspect for you and me today of the issue of speaking in tongues. I don't know of another issue that you're going to get involved in with other people. And you need to understand it for yourself first before you ever try to tell anybody else about it or, or try to deal with it. Now, the church at Corinth have done with this issue, as we saw last week with this teaching, exactly what they've done all through this book. They've gotten the wrong order on things, completely messed up. They missed the point uh, of key Bible teachings altogether. We saw it about communion and the Lord's Supper. We saw it where they're fighting over who baptized who, over who won who to Christ. This church is a mess. And now we have seen in chapter 12, verse 28, where they're messed up on spiritual gifts. Paul gave a list of eight things in the priority that they are. Tongues was number eight. And as we have seen, uh, they have taken what God made number eight and have elevated to making it number one. And we already learned in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 35, that God, a great verse, that God is not the author of confusion. God is not about causing division within churches. This is why God has given us a way to solve every issue that comes up in a church. There should never be a reason why churches split. There should never be a reason why issues come up in the church. If the pastor does his job and teaches the job. I'm not saying there won't be people getting mad and leave. People always get mad about the truth or they have some issue in their own personal life they don't want to deal with and when the spotlight of the Word of God, but when they do leave, the body of Christ understands why they leave. God is certainly not the author of confusion. Now, most of you have heard about tongues and most don't really know what it really deals with. You know the concept. You've heard uh, stories of churches that go absolutely crazy, and uh, they call them holiness churches, call them holy rollers sometimes. A lot of times we as Baptists get tagged with that because they don't make a distinction between the two. But you've all heard stories of, of churches that absolutely go crazy speaking in tongues. You'll have eight or 900 people and everybody going off at the same time, and, you know, uh, and uh, you, we've all heard stories of that. Every city in America has an abundance of churches that, that take the position of speaking in tongues. I mean, you have the churches of Christ, not the church of Christ that came here, but there's another group called the churches of Christ, and they're charismatic. They speak in tongues. You have the church of God. You have churches that are called charismatic churches. And the word charismatic is a word that means to have a superior knowledge, to have a superior ability. You have Baptist churches even getting messed up in tongues, and they're usually called free will Baptist. You have churches that are called full faith uh, churches, and the full faith being that you and I don't have the full faith because we don't speak in tongues. In other words, all of these things go back. One of the greatest, largest institutions probably that you all know of is the called uh, uh, IHOP, International House of Prayer. And uh, they are very charismatic, and uh, you go into one of their services, and you will 
if you're not a partaker of it, you will be carried down the front of the aisle and become a partaker of it. I mean, they're very, very radical in what they do. Many churches are called Pentecostal. They name that after Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. And you know, you're going to find that on a scale 1 to 10, you'll find some, some charismatic churches that are very mild-mannered and they're very almost fundamental. They got some little weird ideas, but basically you would get along in that church. I know of a couple of pastors who are my friends that are churches of God who, who um, you know, uh, if you went to their church service, you know, it would be uh, not much different from this. Then you have on the extreme, on the other hand, you have the churches that are so charismatic and Pentecostal that they actually handle snakes. And they'll go out and find copperheads and rattlesnakes because they believe that they have the authority under Mark 16, 16 that they can pick up serpents. Remember when Paul was by the fire there and, he, and the fire must have been cold and the fire woke up a viper, a serpent, and it put on Paul's hand and bit him. And he just kind of shook it off in the fire. And um, so they were all amazed at that. So you got a group of charismatics that believe that that's for today. So they'll get, I've actually seen them kiss rattlesnakes, put copperheads around their neck. I saw one lady one time with 40 snakes on her. And she was all in the spirit, you know, all of these things was going. I always thought that was kind of cheesy. I mean, uh, first of all, I mean, that's not what the Bible said they did. It wasn't in the Bible. You know, these people, and you're going to see this today, they, they want you to think they're biblical, but when you really look at it, they're not biblical at all. Paul didn't put snakes around him and survive. He got bit by one and survived. And because you get some docile rattlesnake or some docile, dumb docile uh, copperhead, try it with a cobra, about a 14-foot spitting cobra. Kiss him. Try it with a bamboo viper. In the, in the, in the, in during the war, we called him Johnny Two Steps. He bit you. You got two steps before you died. Try it with one of those big sea snakes that got off the coast of Australia. I mean, because you got some half-dead rattlesnake up there, you know, or copperhead, and you know, but the problem was, it isn't the fact that you handle them and they don't bite you. That wasn't the miracle. I've stepped on many a snake in my day and not got bitten. I've even picked them up and not got bitten. The real miracle was getting bitten by one and nothing happening to you. But we don't want to go quite that far with it, do we? So they're on an all scale from, from the mild ones to the ridiculous. You probably know somebody or have some friends who are caught up in all of this. And I, I want to say going in that I'm not saying that these are bad people. I, I'm not saying that at all. I, I, I don't mean that at all. I, I'm just telling you that you can be a very nice person and be screwed up in the Bible. And like I said, we probably know hundreds of people in this church who, or have some friends who are caught up in this. But remember our old Chinese proverb of a couple of weeks ago? If six million people believe a foolish thing, it's still a foolish thing. See? Give it a little more Chinese proverb to it that way, see? Now, when you leave here today, you will have a complete understanding. If I could heal, I'd fix the holes in your pants today, son. That's what I'd do. Today, when you leave here, you will have a complete understanding of this issue from the Bible. Now, we're going to start today with a simple Bible definition of biblical tongues. 
Remember a couple of weeks back, we did the same thing with spiritual gifts, and I laid it out in a way that you ought to have it now and understand it, breaking it down into the three groups. And uh, we can then have a basis to work from when we finally get into chapter 13 and 14. We'll have a basis then that once we see these things, we'll already know what the Bible says about it, and so it'll make more sense to it after we get the proper definition based on the Bible. Now, I want you to get two places in your Bible, and this is all we're going to go today because we, this is all we're going to do, but we're going to get this thing. Now, the first one we already talked about, I want you to go back to Isaiah chapter 28 and pick it up in verse 11. We already talked about this, but I, I, I want to lay a foundation. I want, to give you a, I want to give you a Bible definition today that is so clear that you couldn't miss it unless you just really want to. And we're just going to the Bible. We're just going to the Bible because the Bible has the answers for everything. Now, I told you in Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 through 14, I told you that this was the first prophecy in the Bible on speaking in tongues. And this is the first time you find anywhere in the Bible where it's prophesied that somebody is going to speak in tongues. And I think it's very important that you see this. Uh, First of all, verse 11 says, For with stammering lips and another tongue will I speak to this people. Now, the charismatic would have you to believe that this people is the church. Now, we know our Bible. Bible basics are going to play its way all the way through here. You're going to see how valuable what I'm teaching you in Bible basics comes into hand when you're looking at this. This people here is the nation of Israel. It's not the church. Not the church in any way, shape, or form. There's no church back in the Old Testament. You've got the nation of Israel back in the Old Testament. That's all you're dealing with. To whom he said, this is... This is the rest wherewith you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet you would, not, uh, you would not hear. Now, that rest there is the millennial rest. That refreshing is the refreshing that's found over in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, called the times of refreshing to the nation of Israel when the Lord comes back at the second coming of Christ. This is what you call comparing Scripture with Scripture to get the right answer on these things. So to whom he said, this is rest wherewith you may cause the weary to rest, and this is refreshing, yet they would not hear. For the word of the Lord was unto them a a precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little, that they might go and fall backwards and be broken and snared and taken. Now look at verse 14. Very, very, very important. Wherefore, because what I just said, hear ye the word of the Lord, ye scornful men, here it comes, that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. Now, you see that? This prophecy was given to the rulers of the nation of Israel who had deceived the nation of Israel. And the first prophecy in the Bible you find concerning tongues is not to the church. Now, you don't want to believe that. I suggest you get you an exacto cutter and cut that verse out. But that's what it says. It's a prophecy was given to... (coughs) the nation of Israel, this people, which is in Jerusalem. And we already saw last time or a couple of times ago, Mark 16, 16, (coughs) that he said these signs will follow them that believe. And we already saw that that was to the 11 apostles. We've already seen how that uh, there are signs that were given to apostles, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. And these are the sign gifts speaking in tongues, handling serpents, drinking any deadly thing, uh, you know, healing, miracles. They were the sign gifts that were given to Israel. 
And you're told that in 1 Corinthians 1.22 that the Jew requires a sign. And then you're told in 1 Corinthians 14.22 that tongues are for a sign. See, you just connect all the dots. Now, you'd think for that a Bible believer that would be enough. You'd get that. I mean, how much clearer can it be? All we've done is take the verses, kept them in the right context, got the right definition of who we're talking to, and the Bible's very clear. That's what I try to teach you all the time. I mean, it really doesn't get any clearer than that. Now, I've dealt with charismatics for 40-plus years. I, I wrote a book along with How to Study the Bible called The Charismatic Movement a number of years ago. And uh, this tape today will serve, like I, all the other things that we do, will serve as uh, for future generations and for you, uh, the study guide that you won't get any better than this today. This will be everything you need to know. You get this tape, sit down with it, work it through your Bible, and get all this material in the right place and get you a, kind of a, uh, uh, an overview of it, and you're going to have it together. But I, I, found, that, I found that charismatics uh, are basically wherever you go, are made up of five different characteristics. And like I said, they're good people. Many of them are. One of my best friends in the whole wide world is a charismatic. And him and I tried to talk a number of years ago when I was still young and thought that you could make some headway with somebody like that. And uh, I, I saw very clearly that he wasn't open to anything about the Bible. And uh, it was a lot from his life and watching his life and then getting my own time in the Word of God uh, that, I, that, I, that I saw how these characteristics emerge. And they're all the same. They're all the same. The first characteristic that they all have is basically a total disregard for the authority of the Word of God. To a charismatic, his experience is more important than what the Word of God says. I don't know how many times I've been told when I tried to show somebody that he couldn't speak and done to what the Bible said. I got the answer back, well, you can't deny my experience. The Bible says that when you lay it out for them and you show them it's to the nation of Israel, let me tell you something. If you still have the experience, that is no proof after the Bible says it's not that it is of God. I gave you a little thing, a little three-point outline back when, you know, called faith, fact, and feeling. Charismatics operate on their feelings. Many of God's people operate on their feelings, and your emotions are the most dangerous thing in the world. I told you how a little girl Sandy here a couple of weeks ago, you know, they tried to get her to speak in tongues when she went to a charismatic church. Finally locked her up in a, put her in a closet, didn't lock her up, put her in a closet and, and said, work it, this is where you're going to learn. Get into, get into a closet where you can really focus on it. I've seen him in places where somebody came down and wanted to speak in tongues and they would start out and they would say, okay, just start going, ah, put your head back, go, ah, ask God. And the guy would go, ah, and then he'd go, ah, and then somebody would actually take and hit his throat, ah, and it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Yeah, your broken neck is going to come. <laughs> you see, we believe, we have faith, but we don't have faith in our feelings. We have faith in the facts of the Word of God, and because of what the Bible says, the facts of the Word of God, it produces my feeling. Somebody says, what is your feelings about speaking in tongues? It's based on the facts. What I'm giving you today, very simply, are the facts from the Bible. It will produce the right attitude and the right feeling towards speaking in tongues. It's just that simple. I mean, the Bible says tongues are for a sign. The Jew requires a sign. The first case of healing is Exodus chapter 4. And he says, these signs shall follow. 
you know, I mean, uh, we get to the point where we simply don't care what the Bible says. It's, uh, it's our experience based on our feeling and our emotions. Now, the second thing that, that the characteristic about them is a complete, total disregard and an ignorance of church history. You know what would bother me if I was a charismatic today? And this shows me that they don't care about anything except their experience. This would really bother me. If I was a charismatic today, I'll tell you what would really bother me. It would be the fact that nobody on planet Earth after Acts, the book of Acts, ever spoke in tongues till 1900 A.D. You have an absence of almost 1900 years where nobody ever spoke in tongues. Nobody ever got healed. You got 18 or 1900 years from 66 A.D. to 1900 that nobody on planet Earth speaks in tongues. Nobody on planet Earth gets healed in a healing service. There is absolutely nobody on planet Earth called charismatic, Pentecostal, anywhere. The reason why people get caught up in it today is they can't understand it. You got a blank spot of 1,900 years where nobody, and when you look at church history and you look at the great Philadelphian church age, the time when the Word of God, the Holy Spirit of God went around the earth four or five times, when three quarters of the world had come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, not one person, not one, Not John Huss, not the Waldensians, not George Whitfield, not Jonathan Edwards, not the Novatians, or the Nestorians, or the Polyseans, or the Lollards, or the Manichians, not Martin Luther, nobody, nobody down through history in the greatest time. The great missionaries, the great missionaries that went out during the Philadelphian church age, most of them were medical doctors. You know why? Because they were going to primitive countries where they needed medical care as much as they did the gospel. No healing. Now, that would bother me. Uh, if I was a charismatic today and I realized that I didn't start till 1900 and a woman started it and all this got we got today doesn't go past 1900 and you couldn't find anybody in 1,000, 1,200, 1,500, 1,400, 1,600, 1,700, or 1,800 that even remotely believe what you believe, Now, maybe that won't bother you. That bothers me. That bothers me. The third thing is uh, you never, uh, I never met a charismatic that was ever a serious Bible student or ever knew his Bible. I mean, he couldn't break down the book of Acts if his life depended on it. Acts chapter 7 in the New Testament is probably, and for those of you uh, in Bible basics, you're going to get this this next round. And for those of you who have been, been it before, you know, Acts chapter 7 in your New Testament is an absolutely crucial part where everything changes. A charismatic couldn't lay out what's going on in Acts chapter 7. His life depended on it. They actually think, they actually think the book of 1 Corinthians is a how-to book. They have no idea what's going on in the book of Corinthians. They just take what they want out of it and don't get the context. You ask the charismatic in chapter 14. We talk about the tongues of angels because that's a big thing today that we talk in some heavenly language. And we talk about the tongues of angels where, you know, today tongues have perversed itself to the place where you get up and you speak in some unknown language and it's a prayer language. It's between you and God. You know where they base that on? They base that on 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 
You know why they base it on 1 Corinthians chapter 14? Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul's talking about an unknown tongue. So they're thinking that means that I have some unknown heavenly language that I can speak between me and God. You idiot. Do you not see that the word unknown is in italics? Do you not understand why the words in italics are in your Bible? Do you know what the King James translators or why the King James translators put the words in italics in your Bible? Do you have a clue? Do you even realize that that word, boy, it looks a little different in its format than the other word before it. It's in italics. It was not in the original text. The King James translators put that in there so you'd know that the unknown tongue they were doing in chapter 14 was not the biblical tongues they were supposed to be doing. What charismatic knows that? Better yet, what charismatic cares about that? Now, I'm a Bible believer. I can't speak for you. I want the truth. I told you a couple of weeks ago, if I thought tongues was the way to go, I'd speak in more tongues than all of you. But I'm, I'm stuck on these things. I mean, this is the problem you come up against. This is what we're dealing with. The fourth thing, uh, they always put the emphasis on the power of God, the gifts, but never the character of God. And all you, all, you know, and they all believe along with that is you can lose your salvation. Now, I know you think I talk a lot. That's because the most of the time you spend with me is Sunday morning and Thursday night. But you really hang around with me. I say very little, and I watch and I listen a lot. I've learned over the years that you don't learn anything by talking. You learn by listening. It's in the book of Proverbs, by the way. And you learn by listening. You learn by observing. Once you know the Bible, you don't have to really worry about a lot of things because the Bible says, as far as man is concerned, out of the abundance of the, hearts, out of the, abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. You can tell where somebody's at with God just by how they talk. It's a dead giveaway. And you, once you know the Bible, you know exactly what people at or what they think about the Bible by what they do. It's that simple. The charismatic church believes you can lose your salvation. I've never met a charismatic that ever believed in eternal security. Jimmy Swaggart was one of the biggest, if not the biggest, in our day of the charismatics that you ever find. And I got to admit, I mean, uh, most people don't know this. He's a cousin to Jerry Lee Lewis, great balls of fire. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's a guy that, uh, that uh, uh, came up in the, in the uh, period of time, in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s, and even today, you know. And he had television programs and all of these things, and, and uh, he was a great guy. It was, built, it was him that said that if you didn't have the evidence in speaking in tongues, you were not going to go in a rapture of the church. I've heard him preach on, I've heard him preach a uh, hundred uh, uh, times and talk about how you can lose your salvation. Yet, when Jimmy Swaggart fell into sin with a, with a prostitute and got busted for it, and then came on national TV back to gain his program back and cried big crocodile tears and told everybody how sure he was, you know what he failed to do? He failed to get saved again. You see, you can lose it, but he can't. And if he did get saved, where did he get rebaptized? You think you just grandfather in your old baptism if you can lose it? It's a sham. The problem is people don't know their Bible. They don't know what to look for. So when they see some phony up there, Oral Roberts is another one. 
Oral Roberts is one of the greatest healers in the world. But you know what he does? He has Oral Roberts University. That is a medical school. Now, is that not an oxymoron? I say oxymoron because he's an oxymoron. He's the guy that locked himself up in the prayer tower and told the people, if you didn't give him $8 million, God said he was going to kill him. I'd let God kill him, keep the $8 million. But you know what happened? He got his $8 million. He was shystering people all through the thing. He talked about the power of God, the gifts of God, the gifts of tongues, the gift of healing. And when his own boy blew his brains out because he was a drug addict, he didn't have the power to bring him back to life. I watch things like that. No, I, I'm a fair guy, and I let anybody be whoever they want. But I want to tell you something. You tell me something, I'm going to see if it's true in your life. You tell me you believe this and you believe that God raises the dead and God heals this and God heals that and then you get up there and you talk about both these guys, Swaggered and him. You get up there and you talk about how great God is and how God's a great healer. You had a healing service last night and there was thousands of people healed and then you say open your Bible and then you do what? You put your glasses on? You put your glasses on? You're the greatest hero that ever had thousands healed last night, read dead people, jump tall buildings and leak single bound, faster than a speeding bullet. And when you read the Bible, you got to wear glasses because your eyesight is gone. Things bother me like that. Maybe they don't bother you. That's your business. I don't care. It bothers me. One of the greatest healers down in Oklahoma was a guy by the name of T.T. Osborne. He was Powell's uh, forerunner of, of, of these other guys. And uh, he, was, he, was, uh, he was hooked up with a gal that used to be on the radio called Catherine Kuhlman. We used to listen to Catherine Kuhlman when I was a kid growing up. Woman, charismatic preacher. When Catherine Kuhlman died and got sick and went in the hospital and later died, she was 20 miles away from where T.T. Osborne, the greatest healer in the country at that time was. She never even made the trip to see him. Things like that bother me. They, they all got the power of God and want the power of God, but they don't have any of the character of God. I've never in 40 years, uh, the fifth thing, never in 40 years ever met a charismatic who followed the Bible and what they do. The Bible says that there's an order to tongues. We're going to see it when we get into chapter 14. The Bible says that no women are allowed to speak in tongues. We'll see it in chapter 14. I said it before, you take the women's out of the tongue movement, you wouldn't have a tongue movement. You see, these are the things that bothered me. I'm not, a, I'm not some guy who's got an axe to grind against somebody. I'm really not. If I thought this was the way to go and you could convince me it was the way to go, I'd be there. I have no problem with it. I don't, ha- don't want to believe anything I believe. I want to believe what God wants me to believe and what the truth is. And you come up and show me the truth is different. When I show you what the Bible says, don't tell me, well, don't worry about that. No, I'm going to worry about that. If you're going to say it, then you better line it up with what you do with it. Do you realize that in your Bible, I mean, you're given the impression, you know, that by the, the charismatic crowd today, you're given the impression that, that in the Bible it's just filled with speaking in tongues. You realize that in the Bible there's only three places where somebody speaks in tongues? Three. I said Three. Three. Donos, anos, cuatros. Three. (laughs) 
I am bisexual, I speak two languages. <laughs> Look them up sometime. Acts chapter 2, verse 4. <laughs> I speak Spanish. <clears throat> Nacho Belgrande. <clears throat> Look them up sometime. Acts chapter 2, verse 4. Acts chapter 10, verse 46. Acts chapter 19, verse 6. Only three places in your whole Bible. In your whole Bible. Not four, not five, not six. Three places. Not a hundred, not thousands. Three places in the book of Acts that somebody speaks in tongues. You're led to believe that it's going off everywhere and the Bible's filled with three places in your Bible in the book of Acts. Acts 2, Acts 10, and Acts 19. You study the passage, you'll find they're all over the nation of Israel. Now, why is that? Because tongues are for a sign, and the Jew requires a sign. It's not hard, and every one of them is a language. No book that Paul ever wrote, no book that Paul ever wrote to the churches, does he tell them they're to speak in tongues, or he tells them this is the way to do it, not one book that he writes to the church. You think Romans, the doctrinal foundation of the church, don't you think he would say something about that if it was important? Not one word in Romans. Charismatic says, oh, oh, you're wrong. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and 13 and 14. No, you idiot. He's telling you what's wrong with it there. That's not a how-to book. That's the church at Corinth misusing it like you're misusing it. And here lies the issues, ladies and gentlemen. The modern-day charismatic doesn't use his Bible as a final authority. Oh, he says he does. Right up to where he shows, you show him where he's wrong in the Word of God, and then you got another issue. Now, when it comes to speaking in tongues, the first thing we need to see and get and understand is the Bible's definition for it. I want you to know why tongues were given. You need to understand what I'm about to say. This is going to fix what's wrong with you. And if you don't get this, your wood's wet. You can't grasp anything. You get this down here, and you'll get the understanding of it, what I'm about to tell you. You get the right order, and then when we come back and we start going through chapter 13 and 14, you'll start to see how the thing just comes together, and you'll see why that tongue was causing such a division in the church at Corinth, because it was causing confusion, and why it causes division today and causes confusion. Now we're going to the Bible we're going to pull a dirty trick on everybody. We're going to the absolute final authority, which sets down things in faith and practice. And I'm going to give you the Bible definition and the Bible definitive passage in the Bible on tongues. So now we want to go to our second passage. I told you there was two places. This will be Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Put it somewhere in your Bible or somewhere in your notes. Acts chapter 2 is your definitive passage on speaking in tongues. It is not 1 Corinthians chapter 13 or 14. The definitive passage on speaking in tongues is defined for you in Acts chapter 2. And we'll use that as our base. And when we come back and start going through chapter 13 and 14... We're going to keep building on what we define it to be today. So here we go. Chapter 2, verse 1. 
Now, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house that they were, and we were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and they sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because they heard every man speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how we hear every man in our own tongue wherein we were born, Parthians, Medes, Alamanites, and the dwellers of Mesopotamia, and in Judah, and Cappadocia, and Pontius, and Asia, Pergamum, Pananthia, in Egypt, and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene, strangers of Rome, Jews, and proselytes, Cretes, and Arabians, Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed, and were in doubt, and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others, mocking, said, These men are full of new wine, saying they're drunk. But Peter, standing up in the, with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judah, and all that dwell in Jerusalem, be known unto you, be, uh, be it this known to you, unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaids will I pour out in those days the spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God that ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, and on his right hand uh, should not be moved. Therefore did my uh, heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover shall my uh, flesh shall rest in hope, because, uh, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither will thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make uh, full of joy with thy countenance, men and brethren. Let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, and that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us, uh, with us unto this day. Now, this is a great chapter. And uh, as I said, this is the first place anybody speaks in tongues right here. So that makes it the definitive passage for us. And you're going to learn a lot from this chapter. And let's see if it's what I've told you so far. Maybe I've been lying to you. Let's just see how this thing works out. First thing I want you to notice is in verse 1. It says, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one accord in one place. Now, the first thing I want you to see is the day of Pentecost. The reason why New Testament charismatic churches call themselves Pentecostals is because they say that they started at Pentecost. Nothing could be further from the truth. You'll never find any church after this in the book of Acts or any church down through church history anywhere ever called a Pentecostal church. 
They didn't name their churches back then. Uh, no, the truth of the matter is that Pentecost was never given to the church. If you know anything about the Bible, which a charismatic doesn't, you know that Pentecost was a Jewish feast out of the book of Leviticus, chapter 24 and 25. It never had anything to do with the church. It never did, never had, never will. Now, here's what a charismatic ain't figured out yet. And this is when you become a Bible student, you figure this out. Do you ever study the feast back in the Old Testament? You ever look at the feast back in the Old Testament, back there in the book of Leviticus? They're spread out through about, oh, I don't know, 23, chapter 23 to 25, 26. You're going to find that uh, those uh, feasts back there run the course of seven months. Seven months. Just like your Bible runs the course of 7,000 years. You're going to find that you have the, peace, uh, the uh, feast of the Passover, then the feast of unleavened bread, then the uh, feast of first fruits, then the feast of weeks, then the feast of Pentecost, then the Feast of Trumpets, then the Feast of Atonement, then the Feast of Tabernacle. Now, Charismatic would never figure out what I'm going to about to give you, and I don't have time to go into a great detail, but it's a great study on Thursday night Bible study sometime if you want to get it laid it out. But those feasts represent God dealing with the nation of Israel. Those feasts don't have anything to do with the, with the church, one way or the other. You have the Passover. The uh, Passover is when they started as a nation. Don't you remember your Bible basics? They came out in Exodus chapter 12, so their first feast, well, you know what he did in Exodus chapter 12? Up to that point, they started their day, uh, started their year at the Feast of Tabernacles. He changed the whole calendar schedule. And he said, okay, from this point on, the Passover is going to start your year. Why? That's when they come out of Egypt. So the first feast is the Passover. Then you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then you have the first uh, Feast of First Fruits. And then you have 49 days where it's called the Feast of Weeks. And there is no feast during that 49 days. So you have the first three represent the Old Testament. The space between uh, the 49 days between represent the church age. And then when you come back from that, you have the Feast of Pentecost. That is Christ revealing himself to the nation of Israel. The next feast is the Feast of Trumpets. That's the regathering of Israel. That'd be 1948. The next feast is the uh, Feast of Atonements. That's Israel making their atonement in the tribulation period. And then the last feast is the Feast of Tabernacles, second coming of Christ. You can get a charismatic to understand that if his life depended on it. He put a gun to his head. You know why? He's not a Bible student. So when he sees the day of Pentecost because he wants to believe what he wants to believe in spite of what the Bible says, he makes Pentecost something in the church when Pentecost was never anything in the church. Not the next year, the year after, or the next 18, 1900 years after that, Pentecost wasn't even associated with the church because everybody that believed the Bible knew Pentecost was an Old Testament feast that fit into the seven months of feast that pictured the second coming of Christ to Israel. I don't have time to lay all that out, but you can take it to the bank. Now I'll show you the second problem you got. Look at verse 5. And they were dwelling at Jerusalem, Jews. There's no church here. There's no Christians here. I don't know how to tell the charismatic this. The church doesn't come into effect for 14 years yet. Paul's not even saved. There's no church here. So when you get to the definitive passage, it tells you not only the day of Pentecost, but it tells you, it tells you verse 5, that they uh, were dwelling at Jerusalem, Jews. Look at verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said to them, Ye men of Judah, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem. Look at verse 22. Ye men of Israel. Look at verse 29. Men and brethren. There ain't no, you need to mark every one of those in your Bible. There's no Gentiles here. 
Acts chapter 2 was to the nation of Israel, and it starts in Jerusalem, and that's why the day of Pentecost came, and the Holy Spirit of God came to them, because this passage here has nothing to do with the church. Absolutely nothing to do with the church. Look at verse 14, 15, 16, down through 20. But Peter standing up with the 11. You see? Go back to verse 1. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, Charismatics wants you to believe that's thousands of people. If you go back to the chapter before that, in the last chapter, uh, in the last verse, verse 26, you'll find when it says, and they were all in one accord in one place, it's the 11 apostles. When you come down here in verse 14, it's Peter standing up with the 11 apostles. The only ones that are speaking in tongues are the 11 apostles because those were the signs given to an apostle for the nation of Israel. It's not hard to figure out if you just break it down in your Bible. And then look at this. Peter standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judah and all that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words, for these are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Oh, now we're going to go back to the Old Testament to the book of Joel. And what follows here, verse 17, 18, 19, and 20, is found in Joel chapter 2. Uh, when you look at this, you'll get the context of what we're dealing with here. But that which is spoken by the prophet Joel, and it came to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Now this is where the charismatics take this and applies it to them. And of course, it isn't applied to them. We've already seen this is dealing with the nation of Israel. And I will show uh, my servants and my handmaids, and I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And they shall show wonders in heaven above and the signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire, uh, vapor and smoke. Watch this. And the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. That's the, that's the tribulation period. That's Revelation chapter 14. Look at the context. Before the great and notable day of the Lord comes. Second coming. That has nothing to do with the church. This is God in the first early part of the book of Acts coming to the nation of Israel to give them one last chance to get the Messiah. So all the events are here to give them that chance. And of course, they reject that chance in Acts chapter 7. Now let's look how the Bible defines tongues. First of all, look at chapter 2, verse 14. Before we go to that, look at verse 22. Jesus was approved of God to the Jews by how? Read it, read it. It says it right there. Miracles and wonders and signs. Because the Jew requires a sign. He never came to the Gentiles that way. He came to the nation of Israel that way. Now, that's not all. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 14. Peter standing up. There isn't a charismatic in the world who knows the difference between Peter and Paul in your Bible. They think you get Jesus' mother, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and you got Puff the Magic Dragon little musical group. Peter's ministries to the Jews. Peter's ministries to the Jews. Paul's ministries to the church. Peter didn't write any books to the church. The only books he write, first, second, Peter, they're the general epistles. They're not even written to a church. Paul writes the book of the church. Matthew chapter 16, Peter was given the keys to the kingdom of heaven to the nation of Israel. It's Peter who deals with the nation of Israel. It's Paul that deals with the church. I don't know how to break that news to you. I wouldn't have to read anything more to know that Peter's in charge here that I would know that it has nothing to do with the church. It deals with the nation of Israel. 
That's not all. Now, let's talk about tongues, do you? Let's get a definition of tongues. All right, the Bible says up there in verse 5, that uh, uh, verse 4, and they were filled with the Holy Ghost. Let me say it as a charismatic. They were filled with the Holy Ghost <laughs> and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, here's our tongues. Now, let's see what these tongues are. Let's see. Bible definition. Don't get mine. Leave your emotions out of it. Let's just see what the Bible says. And they were dwelling at Jerusalem, Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. And when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because here it comes, definition of tongues. They heard, every man heard them speak in his own, you finish it out, language. See that thing? Look at verse 8. How hear we every man in our own tongue, wherein we were born? Verse 6. Now, when this was known abroad, he heard in his own language. Verse 4, speak with other tongues. And then down here in verse 8, 9, and 10, and 11, just for sprinklies on your cookie, here comes the 18 nations that they're coming from. He listed them for you. Now, that, now, now, based on what we've seen here, this has nothing to do with the church. Tongues were always a known language. They were, and the nations that are listed, they tell you every man in their own tongue, every man in their own language. He interchanges the words so you would understand that. Now, let's get a Bible basic definition. Now, we've got Acts chapter 28 that saw the prophecy foretelling it coming. We saw Acts chapter 2 that defined it for us. Now, let me give you the real piece to the puzzle here you're missing. Why did God send them to speak in tongues? Here it comes. This is going to you get this, you got a major part of your Bible. Now, you know, <clears throat> by now, for those of you that have been in Bible basics, you know that your Bible wraps itself around two identities. The Old Testament is wrapped around the nation of Israel. Theirs is the kingdom of God. The New Testament is wrapped around the church. Theirs is the kingdom of, of uh, excuse me, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven for the Old Testament. And we know now that that in the Old Testament, God deals through the nation of Israel. Uh, Israel is pictured as God's wife. In the New Testament, Christ, the church is pictured as Christ's bride. And we know that in Bible basics, we saw the, uh, basically what the Old Testament is, is the formulation, the calling out, the establishment under David and Solomon, and then the breakup and the demise after Solomon's death, and then the captivity that takes place in Second Chronicles chapter 36. We know that now. You should be working on that right now. This is my point when I'm telling you that when you get Bible basics down, when you get into the other areas of the Bible, it becomes all makes sense because it all, listen to me, everything that I'm ever going to teach you in that Bible is going to come back and fall on the shoulders of Bible basics. You learn Bible basics, you get it down, you will never have a problem with the Bible from that point on because you always have a source reference to put it on that you know what you're dealing with. So we ended last time in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Remember how Shennacherib came down and took the 10 northern tribes into captivity? Nebuchadnezzar came in and took two of the southern tribes into captivity? And now they go into a 70-year captivity. 70 years they're in captivity. But in reality, for the next 400 years, what happens is, is they get amalgamated into all the world. Let me tell you what the devil wanted to do, Bible basics. 
The devil has tried all through the nation of Israel, all through the history of the Bible to destroy the nation of Israel. We can see it. We've studied in Bible basics. And we're going to see it again when we study the tribulation period here coming up in the next section. But right now what he's done is this. He's angered God through the nation of Israel so much that God puts away the nation of Israel. And now we have what comes in as the Bible lays out in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, times of the Gentiles. And now basically the nation of Israel ceases to exist as a nation and they all get carried away into captivity. For the next 400 years, they're out of their land. At the end of Ezra and Nehemiah, a small remnant goes back. When you go to Ezra chapter 2, I think it's in verse uh, 64, I think it is. In verse 64, it tells you that 43,000 people go back. Now, Israel was numbering about 6 million at this time, maybe more. All those other people were taken and scattered into all these other nations. They go up into Assyria. You know where the Sumerians come from? Remember in the New Testament when the Jews wouldn't have anything to do with the Sumerians and the Sumerians are half-breeds, half-Jew, half-Gentile? You know where they came from? I'll tell you where they came from. When Shennacherib, the king of Assyria, took the ten northern tribes into it, he took a portion of those Jews and took them into Samaria, which was part of the Assyrian kingdom, and he intermingled those Jews with those Sumerians, and they became a half-breed. He wanted to bleed out the true line of the nation of Israel. What the devil wanted to do is to put them in the other countries, have them swallowed up by these countries, that the nation of Israel would never be a nation again. That was his plan. But God took a remnant. And boy, the remnant study in the Bible is an incredible study. God took a remnant. 43,000 Jews took them back into Jerusalem. They're not a nation anymore. They're under the domination of the great Gentile nations that come along after them. But God put them there because he needs to have a remnant in the land 400 years later when Jesus shows up to the nation of Israel. Now follow me. Or you get this down, you'll get it good. When Christ finally shows up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Jews have been scattered for 400 years. He lists the 18 nations there in Acts chapter 2 where they're at. They're all over Asia Minor. And they have, they have been amalgamated in now. I mean, the world has drastically changed in these 400 years. I don't know if you even understand hysterically how it all changed. I mean, in the Old Testament, you have the first great empire is Egypt. Puts them under bondage. Then you have Babylon. That takes them into captivity. Then you have Assyria. They take the northern tribes into captivity. But what happens after that is Persia comes on the scene, becomes a world power, defeats Assyria and Babylon. So now Persia's the world power. About 300 A.D., Greece comes on the scene with Alexander the Great, and he conquers those nations, and he runs the world. Around 100 B.C., Rome has now become the pinnacle and become a strong nation. She defeats Alexander the Great. And I know that's an oversimplification of history, but it, it, you don't want to get bored with all of that. But my point is this. Three major powers had come and gone in those 400 years, which basically reshaped everything on the European and the Asian Mayan continent. The world at the time of Christ 
is a Greek-speaking world. They speak Greek. Yes, they spoke this other languages too, but the Greek empire had transformed the, the known world. Uh, the Roman Empire wanted to build their cities and be like the Greeks. And it, it was a Greek-speaking world based on the world conquering of Alexander the Great. But here's the deal. The language of God is Hebrew. In fact, in Zephaniah, one of those old books tucked away back there in, in the Old Testament, the Minor Prophets, in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9, you know what it says? It says that when God comes back, they're going to speak a pure language. You know what that pure language is? Well, it isn't English. It's Hebrew. But here's the problem. For 400 years, the nation of Israel was scattered. They have lost their religion. They've lost their relationship with God. And not only have they lost their roots and their culture and their relationship with God, but many of them have lost their pure language and no longer speaks Hebrew. It's a lot like, I'm sure, in this room, we have third generations Italian. Norbert back here is a second generation German, second, first generation. You speak German? Not anymore. You know what he's done in just one generation? He's lost his native tongue. Some of you were third generation Italian? Third generation? Second generation? You speak Italian? No, no. You see, in just one or two generations, people have lost their native tongue. We're talking about the nation of Israel being gone for 400 years. That's four generations of 100 years each. And they have lost their native tongue. They no longer speak the pure language of Hebrew. And uh, many of these Jews, even though they lost their language, they held on to the promises of a coming Messiah. They didn't know how. They didn't know when. You see, God always has his remnant. You want to put it into a modern-day configuration? They're a lot like us at Old Paz. We still hold true to what the Waldensians believe and the Albigensians believe. We will never take Baptist off our name. We will never not put the Bible as the centerpiece. We will teach doctrine, whether anybody likes it or not. We're not afraid who likes what we preach or who doesn't. We figure that when you really become spiritual, as the Bible says, he that loveth the honeycomb, even the bitter things become sweet. We take a stand on what we believe, and we don't change it. We don't change our doctrinal stand from what we've had all the way down, tracing it back to the early church at Antioch where they're first called Christians. And you're going to find that there were Jews, just some Jews just like that. And they were Jews that they held the truths. They were looking for the Messiah. They knew who Christ was. Just like we today know what Bible to use. We still teach the principles and the doctrines of the Bible when other churches do not. We still take a stand for things that are right, even in a world or in some of the churches where they won't because they will make people mad. That's not what a church is supposed to be. The church is to be a lighthouse. It's to be a beacon of truth. It's to stand the test of time when nothing else stands. What churches have eroded today, just like the nation of Israel did. And they knew God would deal 
with the nation of Israel because of the Old Testament through signs and wonders. And that's why he told you in Acts 2 that Jesus himself was approved of the Jews by the miracles and the signs and the wonders that he did because those Jews were looking for it. Ah, but those Jews also knew the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 28, (coughs) verses 11 through 14. And they knew about the stammering lips of speaking in another tongue wasn't to them. And I want you to note in Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost comes, it fits right into the Jewish feast, nothing to do with the church. And verse 4 and verse 6 says, they say, we hear every man speak in our own language the marvelous works of God. And how we hear every man on our own tongue wherein we were born. You see, tongues always were, always will be a known language. The church at Corinth had perverted it into some spiritual heavenly utterance just like the modern charismatic move done today. But that's, not, never, that's never what it was intended to be and never what it was when God was doing what he was doing. Tongues were a known language that the Jews who were taking into captivity and lost their native tongue, which was Hebrew, and now could hear the first coming of Christ that Jesus had come that God gave the apostles the ability to speak in their language because they had lost the language of Hebrew. That's exactly what it is. And that's why they're called the sign gifts given to an apostle. That's why the Bible says that not everybody speaks with tongues. That's why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, where there be tongues, they cease. You see, he gives that to the apostles. It's not everybody running around when it, over there in the day of Pentecost when it says the Holy Spirit of God fell on them and they spoke with tongues. It's not. You get the impression that it's hundreds of Christians that are doing that. It's 11 men who are doing that based on the context of the chapter before in the last verse. The 11 apostles, because those 11 apostles were given that key to speak to the other Jews of the other nations that no longer spoke their language. And that's exactly what tongues were. So he gives them the gift of speaking in tongues. One, to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 28. Two, to give the Jews from all nations of the captivity the good news of Christ came and give them a chance to get the kingdom. Now, after Acts 7, it all changes. And we don't have time this morning to get into what transpires uh, in Acts chapter 7. But you'll note, if you notice the course of your Bible in the book of Acts, you know that in the first seven chapters, it's all dealing with the nation of Israel. You'll notice that Peter is doing all the preaching. You'll know that everything that comes to the, you could go chapter after chapter up to Acts chapter 7, and you will find that uh, it's all to the Jews. The messages are all about what Israel has done to the Messiah. When you get to Acts chapter 7, one of the great deacons, Stephen, gets up before the nation of Israel, the scribes, the Pharisees, and all the leaders of Israel. And he preaches his great message on what Israel has done with the Messiah. He says, this same Jesus that you have crucified, God hath made both Lord and Christ. And when they heard that, the Bible says they were pricked in their heart. They picked Stephen up and they threw him out and they killed him. And that marks the official rejection of the nation of Israel of the Messiah. Israel gets three chances to get the Messiah. One of John the Baptist, they killed him. Christ came himself, they crucified him. But on the cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So God gives them one more chance in Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. What do they do with that chance? They kill him. Now watch this. 
No charismatic in the world can understand what I'm about to give you. He couldn't lay out the book of Acts if his life depended on it. Well, after Acts chapter 7 and the first seven chapters, you have God dealing with the nation of Israel. Peter is the main gang, and he's speaking only to the Jews. They make the final rejection in Acts chapter 7. What happens immediately? Acts chapter 8, revival breaks out in Samaria. Half Jew and half Gentile. They were told not to go to the Samarians in Matthew chapter 10. Now a revival breaks out. What happens at the end of the chapter? An Ethiopian eunuch out of Africa, a full-blown Gentile, now gets saved. What happens in chapter 9? Paul gets saved, the apostle of the Gentiles. What happens in Acts chapter 11? They're first called Christians at Antioch. What happens in Acts chapter 12 up to Acts chapter 20? The missionary trips where Paul now takes and starts Gentile churches all over Asia Minor. God has now temporarily finished with the nation of Israel. And that's why you're going to find that the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 12, 30, not all speak with tongues because only the apostles did. That's why you're going to find over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8, and we'll get into this next week, the Bible says tongues will cease because once God was finished with the nation of Israel and moved into the church age, tongues ceased to be done. That's why the greatest healer that ever lived over there in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20, Paul. Paul raised dead people. And yet you read over there in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20, that he leaves some guy sick. He's lost the power to heal him himself. That's why I told Timothy over there in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, every drunk's favorite verse, to drink a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. You know why? Because of the power of healing is now gone. Tongues, as all the healing gifts, were to Israel. And they're only here as long, and then they begin to phase out after Acts chapter 7. And by the time Paul was dead, by the time Paul gets to the end, they're gone. And that's why you have an 1,800-year gap in church history where nobody ever does it to a woman, Amy McPherson, out at the Exula Street Mission in Los Angeles in 1900, first speaks in tongues. Then it starts after that in Bethel Baptist Church in, in uh, Topeka, Kansas. Then it moves to the full Gospel Businessmen's Association. Then it moves to the Charismatic. And up through the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, you have a reviving of all of this stuff that absolutely did not exist for the last 1,900 years. Now, this is the Bible definition, you see. The gifts were never given. These gifts were never given to the church. These are the sign gifts given to the apostles to reach the nation of Israel because they had lost their native tongue in that 400 years of captivity. And uh, tongues never was or never will be anything more than that. And that's the Bible definition in the right context of the passage. Now, it should be no great revelation to you today that the modern-day charismatic movement is a carbon copy of the Church of Corinth. And I'm sure there's good people in the charismatic movement. I know many of them, just like there were probably good people in the Church at Corinth. But the bottom line is, bad doctrine is still bad doctrine. The Church at Corinth was the most carnal and unbiblical church in the New Testament. It shied away from every Bible doctrine that had anything to do with truth. They are messed up on every issue concerning the Bible and chapter by chapter. It's a church full of spiritual babies who all uh, we'll see in the next two chapters, they all want the power of God. They are already setting up the spiritual hierarchy of who baptized who and who won to Christ. Now when we get into this, 
Whoa, they've taken tongues that was a known language defined in the Bible, brought it into an unknown tongue, so now they can brag about my message from God is better than yours. And in these three chapters, really chapter 13 and 14, we're going to see the order that Paul gives this church about tongues. If you insist on speaking in tongues today, that's your deal. But if you want to be biblical about it, you better get the order that he gives them over there in chapter 14 because he lays it out very clearly. And we'll talk about why next time the church of Corinth was still was speaking in tongues. We'll put that all together for you. My goal today was to give you the Bible definition of tongues. You learn all this. This is the first major issue I learned when I got right with God some 40 years ago because I was in, surrounded by charismatics, as many of you will be today or are today. And I wanted to know. I actually explored it. I wanted to find out if it was the truth because I told you a couple of weeks ago, I'm, I, I want truth. I don't care what it is. If I thought being a hairy Christian was the way to get to heaven and what God wanted me to do, I'd shave my head, get me a robe, and head for the airport and not to take a plane. I'd be down in the plaza, passing out Ming, my little temporary room, blowing it around and dancing around. I do it. That's what I thought was the way to do it. You know what? I don't care what it is. I just want the truth. Unfortunately, God gave us a book that tells us what the truth is. And when we don't want to go along with the Bible, we're going to wind up in trouble. This was the first issue I had to deal with. This is the first issue that I learned. And uh, it, I've used it ever since in my life. Uh, not that you're going to necessarily change anybody that already is engrafted in it because it can get very, 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 very fleshly. But it'll help young Christians. It'll help you. You know, I don't, my goal is not for you to go out and change the world. That's not why I teach you the Bible. My goal to teach you the Bible is because that's my job to make sure I equip you with the Bible. God will have you do what he wants you to do with it. My job is to simply, when I stand behind this pulpit and I preach the Word of God, or Thursday night when I lay out Bible study, my job is to give you the truth, the way the Bible lays it out, equip you. And brother, you got the major issue to find for you today. And what you do with it from this point on will determine, you know, where you go through the rest of the Bible. I'm telling you, Bible basics, and you can already see how it's always pulling everything back together. You take the time to learn your Bible basics and get these things down, you'll learn your Bible. I learned that you learn your Bible one section at a time. Today, you've got a major section defined for you, a major component, and you need to get it down. Get the tape, get the book, whatever you need to do. Break these chapters down as we go through it. Next week, we're going to, now that we have got a biblical definition and a foundation down, we'll put a biblical end to the modern-day charismatic movement, put them right out of business as far as the Bible's concerned. Oh, we won't change any churches or stop any foolishness going on, but as far as your understanding of it and what you need to do and how you need to handle it and now that you know what the Bible says, you'll have a handle on it, and that's all I care about. Well, we'll hold up today there. We'll pick it up next week. Take time this morning to shine up for the various things that are out there, especially the uh, Chalking Kids to Christ concept and all the different things that are going on. And um, I will see you Thursday night if I don't see you before. Thank you for, again, for holding the fort down while I was gone. It was good to be back. Always good to go see my parents and my in-laws, but it's always good to be back too. God bless you. Let's have a word of prayer. We'll be dismissed. Father, take these men and take these women here today, the ones that want to learn your word, the ones that want to be uh, proficient in the word of God. 
help them to see the value of what we talked about today. The Lord, that this is the end of the road. There's no other place to go to study this. This is everything that they need. This is it defined by the Bible, laid out, put in a context with the right order and everything that needs to be done. Help them understand this great issue because this issue will be something they will deal with, uh, talk with people about, and uh, Lord, uh, at work, uh, wherever in their neighborhoods or their friends, this will be something that they will be able to use the rest of their life if they get it down. Help them, Lord. Help me to always lay it out clearly and plainly. We love you. Thank you for all you do now. Bless the rest of our day. And uh, Lord, all the events coming up, and we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.